The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and His Word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through His Word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory. Join of God. us on this journey as our pastor Justin Hibbard leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. Well, let me take a, just a couple of minutes just to say thank you so much for last week. That was just such a, a warm and loving celebration, and I, Carly, and I, we are just so appreciative of this church and the way. Um, that you demonstrate your love to us and cons- and consistently do so, and um, it was just it was it was wonderful. It was wonderful to be here with you all. My family was here, which was great, and um, also it was neat to see some people that I've worked in uh, that are local that I've worked in in ministry with before. Um, so that was just a really exciting time, and it sort of begins like a, a new beginning as we look at this series on radiance. And, what it, and we're going to take a look at these seven churches, as Barbara mentioned, these seven churches of uh, Revelation. The purpose of this is that um, I really believe that God speaks to each and every one of us, and that the vision of the church isn't just something that the pastor dictates to the church or that necessarily the elders dictate to the church as well, but it's rather each and every one of us has a calling and a purpose from God. We're all gifted with spiritual gifts. And that each of us brings to the table our own visions, our own ideas of what the church ought to be. And together, we are a church made up of individuals serving the community, serving this local body. And so my desire is that each and every one of us really listens to the Lord and hears what it is that he's saying to us. What are, you know, what are some of the things that he would say if he were to write a letter today? What is he speaking through to us through these letters? And through this understanding, and I, you know, as I was, I was, I was sitting at my desk the other day. I just was looking through the podcasts, and I clicked on the first one that we had after Gary had left. And I was just listening to a few minutes of it, and something struck me that I said. I think sometimes I get up here and I ramble, and I'm not really sure what I'm saying at the time. Uh, those of you who have been public speakers may have that. You know, you're just talking and talking and talking. But I said something, and it just it struck me um, to listen back back in August 29th, 2010, of something um, that was said. So take a listen to this. Um, So the church has kind of grown around him. But even though he is gone, doesn't mean that there is nothing for our church. And in fact, I'm encouraged because about a year ago, I think around a year ago, there were a couple people that came up to me at different times and said, Justin, I really feel like God is doing something and he's moving in some way that's big. And I think we would have all thought maybe, you know, we didn't all think it, it had to do with taking our pastor away. But nonetheless, I still feel that way. And I still feel like there is something big happening. And I'm encouraged. I, I was overhearing someone talking with Gary and said, you know, Gary, I've been getting a sense that, that God has been writing this next chapter in the life of New Hope Chapel. And he's writing the next chapter for you as well. And so what that chapter is, I don't know. I think we have to cross some tumultuous land to get there. But nonetheless, it is an adventure. And as God is with us, as God is on our side, we will find what it is that God has for us. 
Isn't that kind of neat? It was interesting just to kind of listen back and say, you know, what were we going through, a, you know, a year and a half ago? And it's neat to have these podcasts because you can, you can listen back to it. And you can, now you can evaluate and say, it's been a year and a half. What has happened? You know, what, how has our church changed? And I don't think that this chapter is what is the culmination of what God has in mind. I think this chapter is the beginning of what God has in mind. And we'll look, you know, that, the, that transition time was a time of great joy, great trials, great um, lessons that we learned, great development for us as a church. And who knows what the Lord is going to do um, in these next weeks, months, and even years down the road. And so I'm asking you to join with me in doing four things, which I talked about in the connections. First of all, I'm asking you to pray with me. Pray that God would speak to you. Pray for the vision of New Hope Chapel. Ask him, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to serve? Also reflect. Three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll be sending out uh, some messages that have to do with um, these lessons that we're learning, that deal with um, these seven churches, and kind of talk in a little more detail than I will on Sunday morning about something specific. There's a passage of scripture that you can read that goes along with the message. If you don't like to read, there's an audio version. So if you'd like, rather listen to it, you can do that as well. And then thirdly, learn. Learn what it is that, um, that's going on in these, in these seven churches. You can, uh, I'll, I'll kind of give a springboard of um, a way of looking at these churches, but certainly there's a wealth of a lot more information that's out there. And Make that connection between what is God saying to these seven churches and how does that relate to our church 2,000 years later. And also discuss. On Sunday mornings, we have Sunday school, which Meredith leads for the adults. And it's a great time to get together and talk about what we're learning. How is it that God is impressing on our hearts? What are some takeaways from the lessons? Some, some things that you may agree with, some things you don't agree with. I had a great discussion today about, about some of these things, about what is New Hope Chapel, what are the things that we like, what are the things that we could work on. And this is a great way to, um, to learn about what it is that God is saying to each and every one of us. But we begin by looking at these seven churches. And I'll talk a little bit about, uh, give an intro to them, maybe why I believe that there are only seven churches that are dealt with here in Revelation, and there could be a lot more said. And as Barbara mentioned, they're all located in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor. And so we're going to look at seven of them, and this week we're going to deal with the church at Ephesus. We ought not be surprised that that the first church that's listed, listed in these seven churches is the church of Ephesus. It was, a, it was the church, if there was a church. It was the church that you would go to in Asia Minor. And we're going to read in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, but the Bible says a lot more about the church of Ephesus. In fact, we know that Paul himself is one who helps start this church and works with the elders. He will later write a, a letter to the church of Ephesus, and then it's 30 years after this that the, the, the book of Revelation is written. But Paul works with the elders. He, he goes to the synagogue there in Ephesus. He, he debates with the Jewish people. He tries to reason with them. He also has to combat some of the polytheistic nature that's going on in Ephesus as well. He will later write a letter to a man named Timothy, he writes two letters to them that it's in Scripture. Timothy is one of the leaders, well, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And he gives some great insight onto how to be a leader within his church. We also know that Priscilla and Aquila had a, a part in working with Paul 
in, in this church. And last but not least, the Apostle John, the very one writing the book of Revelation, there's good, there's good evidence to suggest that he himself spent time in Ephesus as well, working with this church. So, I mean, look at this church. Look at all the leaders that came out of this church. If, you were to, you know, if we were to think of a church in the United States, a church that has uh, a great influence, maybe you have one in mind. Maybe it's a Saddleback or a Willow Creek. Maybe it's um, a more traditional church. Maybe a St. Patrick's Cathedral or something like that, where this is a church that has, this has a, a rich history to it. That was the church of Ephesus. And it's no, no surprise that the Lord begins this these letters, he begins with Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city. It was the capital of that region of Asia Minor. And probably one of its uh, most famed pieces of architecture was the Temple to Artemis. The Temple of Artemis is now kind of in ruins, which you can see up there, but there is a model of it uh, around there, which you can see how grand this temple was. The worship of Artemis was central to the people of Ephesus and really to the people of the Greco-Roman era. It's interesting that this structure, along with another famous structure in Ephesus, the theater, was, uh, is mentioned in the book of Acts. We read about it in Acts chapter 18 through 20, which is Paul's second missionary journey, where he be, he's working with the church plan of Ephesus. I mean, look at this structure. It's absolutely magnificent. I, I've never been here. Carl, you said you, you were at Ephesus, right? I mean, this looks, this looks amazing. And it's, it's dug out of the mountain, built out of the mountain, overlooking. You can look out and see the sea and everything like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. But there's an interesting story in, that we find in the book of Acts. And there was a man named Demetrius who lived in the city of Ephesus. Demetrius' job was that he fashioned uh, objects that were involved in the worship of Artemis, the Greek goddess Artemis. And he one day got upset. Because what was happening was Paul and the other Christians were converting people, and Christianity was growing and spreading there in Ephesus. And so Demetrius, he gets angry because that's his livelihood that this is infringing upon. So he begins to start a little bit of a riot. And they grab two leaders from the church of Ephesus and drag them into the theater. And it says they weren't really sure what they were going to do with them, but some of the crowds started, started chanting, Artemis is our God. And then it says in, in Acts that some of the people didn't even know why they were there. But anyways, there was this mass confusion that erupted. And finally, someone got up and said, look, Artemis is our God. Just let these people be, and so on. And that sort of fizzled everything out. But it's not long after this, maybe, uh, I don't know, 100 years or so after this, that the temple of Artemis is destroyed by the Goths. And then it's rebuilt, but it's rebuilt by uh, in a time where the worship of Artemis has declined. And then... Uh, Ephesus was later, the um, official religion of Ephesus was later established to be Christianity. And at that point, the Temple of Artemis was destroyed again. So this, was, this is a history that, that stems all the way back from around 60 A.D., but continues on. And it's in 90 A.D. that, we'll, that more or less, that John writes this letter. But I want to turn our, our attention to Acts chapter 20 before we begin looking at the, at the book of Revelation. Because in Acts chapter 20, we have a great passage. Paul is on the beach uh, of Ephesus. He's about to set sail to Jerusalem. And he brings together the elders of the church of Ephesus. And, he, and he's just very passionate in his farewell address. And this is 
what he says to them. I'm so glad we have this. And it gives us a lot of insight to our lesson today. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace that can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So with that in mind, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, and we begin the seven letters to the seven churches with the letter to the church at Ephesus. John writes, To the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All seven of these letters have a very um, similar pattern to them. And in all seven, the Lord begins by introducing himself. And in in Revelation chapter 2, we read this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in in his right hand 
and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I want us to kind of put that in the back of our mind for a minute. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want to look now at the commendation. Because in all of these letters, well, at least in most of them, oh, you know what? I, I, that picture was supposed to come up because I want to talk about protecting this house and Ray Lewis. Man, dramatic entrances just thrown away. Okay, anyways. <laughs> Let's look at the commendation. Here we go. <laughs> I know your deeds, your hard work. Well, what's the gist of what he knows about them? What are the things that, that Ephesus has done well? Well, they've resisted false teachers. They've resisted false doctrine. They've stood firm, holding fast to the, to the faith, right? What was, what was Paul's gist to them? If we were to sum up his, his last exhortation to them as he's about to leave Ephesus, what was it? Stand firm. Be careful. Because there are going to be people that are going to come into the church and try to, try to influence you through doctrine and all sorts of teaching. What else does he say? He says, be careful because there are going to be people within your church that are going to rise up and try to make a name for themselves. Try to lead people and be, to be their disciples instead of disciples of Jesus. And it's interesting to note that Paul's exhortation is lived out in the city of Ephesus. They stood firm against people who came in, and we'll talk about the Nicolaitans on another week when we deal with a church that has that same particular issue. But they have persevered and not grown weary. The things they had to combat, we know there was a heavy Jewish influence uh, in the city of Ephesus, and that Paul spent a lot of time with them. We know there's a lot of polytheism from the Romans, uh, from the Roman, the Greco-Roman culture of the time, and a lot of um, a lot of worshippers of the of the goddess Artemis, and so these people have stood firm, and it's got to be difficult because they don't have a canon of scripture like we have. Well, they had some letters from Paul, the letter to the Ephesians, the letters to Timothy, maybe some others, some people that tra- traveled by to to teach them and to counsel with them and to love them and to show them how to be Christians. But other than that, there's, there's not a lot there. They really had to wrestle with some of these major issues. You know, it speaks to a couple of things. Number one, we have to, we have to stand firm in our doctrine. We have to know the Bible. We have to know what Scripture says. We have to believe. We have to know what we, be, what we believe. We have to put in practice what we believe. I've often said that um, you, know, you can tell what someone believes by just watching the way they act. And I know a lot of us would say, well, I don't really believe how I acted at that moment isn't a reflection of what I believe, but I think sometimes it is. Sometimes we don't realize that deep down the reason why we act a certain way to God is because we believe something about God. And we need to combat that with real solid theology. It's important for us to, to know that. And the second thing about this is that, um, the second point that I want to make is that not only do we have to know what we, have to, what we believe, but we have to watch out for each other. Satan has a way of working in all of our hearts. We know ourselves. We know what we're susceptible to. We know when we have, uh, when we have become weak in an area. And sometimes you can see that in each other. We can see when somebody is faltering and stumbling and so forth. And it's important to, to speak the truth in love and to pull them aside and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing here. And I want you to, to watch out. Be careful. Because that's what Paul says. He says, watch over the flock and over 
yourselves. In other words, as Ray Lewis would say, here comes the dramatic entrance. (laughs) We must protect this house, right? (laughs) Go Ravens today, yes. (laughs) Now, this is the good things they're doing, right? But in each of these churches, or at least in most of them, they also have a reprimand. And this is the reprimand. And out of the two churches, out of the, the seven churches, the two reprimands we, we remember the most is this one. You have lost or you have left your first love. And remember the one that's lukewarm, right? Those are the two famous ones that we remember. But this one, they've lost their first love. Last week, I, I got to share with you some of my experience as a pastor in the Seventh-day Baptist denomination. And um, it, it was a really ex- interesting experience because... Um, they deal with things that we may never have to deal with. And growing up, you know, I was always warned about the influence of people who worship on Sundays like us, right? Or, or we were always warned against the Seventh-day, ba- or Seventh-day Adventist churches that would come. And, and in some countries, that is a real problem. I worked with, um, I worked with the missionary director there, or the former director of uh, missions, and he would tell me all these stories about being in Africa. And in Africa, part of his job was just to help them cross their T's and dot their I's. Because what would happen is, if they weren't really clear on the law of the land, a church could come in, or people from another church could come in, take a vote, and oust the church. Take over the church property, take, oh, change the church uh, belief and structure, and suddenly that church is no longer a Seventh-day Baptist church, it's another church. And so this is a real problem in some countries. It's amazing. I had a good friend of mine. Um, he's a pastor well-respected within the denomination, a wonderful man of God, and he's doing great work there. But he was, a, he was a pastor of a church up north. And one day, his congregation, or at least a faction of his congregation, decided that they wanted him out. So they made some phone calls and got together all of the people. Who knows how long this was in the works? Got enough people together that would vote him out to the point where they had a a, a quorum of the total membership of the church, met together in a secret meeting at the church, and voted him out. And we think to self, you know, you think, you're like, how in the world is that a way that a church should operate? It's not. It is totally satanic. And the problem is, is that some churches, this is what's what's happening. And I, I feel blessed that we're not having to deal with that. But in some churches, this is a real problem. And so Paul tells them, and, and it's something that we should heed today, beware, keep watch over the flock and of yourselves. That's why we have things like membership and constitutions and bylaws. It's, to, it's one way of protecting the church. It's certainly not the only way. You know, and I, I got to share with you, it was great to see my friend Juan, who was here, um, who I worked with this, with the Spanish church. And he, it, it was interesting because that was a time where our church... W- was very unsure about what direction to take. And so I was pushing, I was saying, hey, here's the Spanish church. They want to be a part of our conference. Let's make them a branch church. Let's make them a sister church of our, of our church. And there were some people like, we don't know these people. They're really concerned with protecting the church. We don't know who they are. We don't want them to come in and influence us in a way that, that takes us away from our focus, from our distinctives, which is understandable. And I remember when we were talking about um, working on the bylaws to allow for this church to become a branch church, someone raised their hand and said, well, how do we kick them out? And, and someone raised, and was like, well, we haven't even gotten to the point where we're, we're talking about them being a part of our church. Now you're talking about kicking them out. 
You know, it's, it's important to understand that what the Lord is talking about here is a balance. On one extreme, you have a church that is so uh, open to society, so open to being whoever the community is, that they forget their distinctives, they forget their doctrine, and they just let whoever come in and influence the church in whatever way. And on the other hand, you have a church that's so closed, so protected, so uh, concerned about continuing on in a way that it actually loses its first love. It forgets about the reason why it existed in the first place. It becomes tradition. And isn't that what Jesus was combating with the Pharisees? Here's a group of people who were so concerned that Israel, that, that they protected Israel. They wanted to make sure that Israel followed the law of God. Because if they did not follow the law of God, they were in trouble. And so the Pharisees took it upon themselves and the leadership, the Jewish leadership, that we must make sure that these people follow the whole law of God. And so what did they do? They added policies on how to follow the law of God, the Mishnah, the traditions. And they added it and added it and added This is what it means to keep the Sabbath. This is what it means uh, to do this. This is what it means to be kosher. And so on and so forth, to the point where Jesus comes in, he says, you know what? You follow me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. They had lost the love of God. And when Jesus is teaching constantly, and Gary brought this up last week, he always points to the law of God. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It is the center point of the law. Of the 613 laws in the Jewish, uh, in the Torah, that law is right in the center of it. Because he wants us to understand that it all, it's not about rules. It's about loving the Lord. And so the warning that is given to Ephesus because they left their first love is this. I will remove your lampstand if you don't repent. On Wednesday, I sent out a message about the lampstands, and I want to just look at that just for a brief moment. But let's turn back to the introduction there in verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. If you want to flip your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12, this is sort of where the, the beginning of John's vision takes place. He says, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and the mom one like a dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash. Uh, I'm sorry. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The seven stars, and verse 20 says, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, I was looking for an image that would best describe this, because what John is seeing, he's not seeing one lampstand. I think a lot of the images that I saw was just kind of like one light post. But when he talks about lampstands, we're talking about the seven-branch menorah that was in the temple. In other words, what John sees is he sees Jesus, our high priest, which is talked about in Hebrews and then later on in Revelation, because the temple on earth was to mirror the tabernacle in heaven. And so what he sees, he sees seven lampstands, not just one lampstand that adorned the holy place, he sees seven of them. And each of these lampstands represents a church. And each lampstand has seven branches. 
So there's a total of 49 different lights that are going on. So you know what? I was looking, looking, looking for an image. You know what I found? The only image that seemed to do this justice. (laughs) I kid you not. (laughs) Leave it to a guy who's creative with Legos. (laughs) The Brick Testament to give this description. So this is what he sees. 49 branches all lit up, seven lampstands. And I think this is very profound, a very profound image. Because each church has their own lampstand. In other words, it's not, that, uh, it's not that we're one branch of another church and so forth. We have our own lampstand. But within our own lampstand, there's a diversity of lights, a diversity of branches, represented by seven branches. It, it shows the complexity. Each one of us has the responsibility of being that branch, of being that light bearer of God. In Leviticus, we read that the high priest's role, as God dictates to Aaron, he says, your job is to keep those lights burning. Why? Because the menorah there in the temple, that lampstand, represented the presence of God. And so it was important for the Jewish people to understand that the presence of God was always there, represented by the eternal flame. But when was the menorah taken out? The menorah was taken out in times of judgment by the Babylonians, by the Greeks, in Antiochus, when, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. That is when the lampstand was removed. God does not threaten to, remove, to take out the lights. He doesn't threaten to extinguish the menorah because he's not telling us that, hey, I'm taking away my presence, right? As long as we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God. What he's threatening to do is to take out the whole menorah. And so, in other words, we have to keep watch because the problem with Ephesus is, is that they, they were so closed-minded. They, they had become so maybe tradition-minded. Maybe so uh, they did things because they did them. But they lost the love of God. And so they had no place in the temple, in God's place for churches. I think, uh, you know, the... This group in Asia Minor are kind of um, isolated in that these are the seven churches, but in reality there are perhaps hundreds, thousands, millions of lampstands that the Lord has. And we talk about things like being relevant to the world and so forth. The most important person we can be relevant to is Jesus, and that we have to love Jesus with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. He is the one that walks among these lampstands. He is the one that keeps it lit. He is the one that uh, gives us purpose to our being and to our existence. At the end of all of these letters, there is a promise that's given. And this this one it says, in verse 7, chapter 2, it says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, as I'm imagining John writing this letter, I'm imagining he's getting all of these descriptions, and he really doesn't know what he's writing. He's just writing down what he's seeing. And so he writes this, this passage here, and, he think, and I'm thinking he's got to be thinking to himself, eats from the tree of life. The tree of life was in Eden. Maybe there's going to be uh, an Eden that's restored. And so as, as we'll see with each one of these, these promises that are given to the seven churches, that there's something later on in Revelation that gives clarity 
to what he's talking about. We find the fulfillment of this in Revelation chapter 22. It says in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So what a neat thing. So as he's writing these letters and he's giving these promises, later on he's going to tell them where all of these promises are found. That all these promises are found in a new heaven, in a new earth. They're found after the second death. They're found in this place, in this paradise that God has for each and every one of us. So as we conclude this morning with, this, with the, the story of Ephesus and the church of Ephesus and look in our own prayer and our own discussion of what, is it, what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to radiate the glory of God? You know, we have to think about this balance that Ephesus has. How do we, how do we protect the doctrine of the church? What is my responsibility in understanding the word of God and understanding uh, how I'm supposed to live my life in light of God's truth? But also, how am I supposed to love God? You know, it's so, it's so easy for us to go through motions. I, I'm, a, I'm a creature of habit. We're all creature of, creatures of habit. It's easy for us to get up on Sunday mornings because that's what we do. It's easy for us to have Bible study because that's what we do. And I think the thing that we have to stop and reflect about and think about is, how do I do this? How do I make the motiv- my motivation for everything I do the love of God? Jesus. The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant Relevant, church, but more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and his word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through his word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory. Join of us God. on this journey as our pastor Justin Hibbard leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. New Hope Chapel is a ministry in Arnold, Maryland. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Special thanks to the least of these for the music for this podcast.